0: Well, good morning. Um, So we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapters 4 through 6. And as you can uh, imagine from the number of chapters, this is a pretty decent amount of material. So I'm going to be trying to speak simply on the things of these chapters, but also hopefully speak very clearly about the power of the things within these chapters. Zechariah is a book that is very heavy in images and illustrations, almost like a book of Old Testament parables. And so it's a book where you can, you can read it and almost, I think, get frustrated at the feeling of confusion when you're reading things that it feels like you can relatably get a sense of understanding from without necessarily knowing what the purpose or the power of the lessons really are. And I think that can make a book like this extremely valuable then to understand how relatable and important a book like this is, especially to our circumstances. So the title of this lesson is Restoring Passion and Participation. The first three chapters we titled Restoring God's Broken Image. And the idea is the the nation of Israel, because of their sin, they had been scattered and punished for over 800 years of continuous rebellion against God. They'd been brought back because of a repentant and humble heart that the nation had had. And so they were rebuilding the temple of God. They were restoring Jerusalem, but... More important than restoring the condition of the city that they had, more important than that was restoring the broken way that they saw God and being motivated on that, ba- on that basis. And so chapters 4 through 6 really deals with restoring motivation for God's work. So just a couple of introductory things that I want to put up every time we look at Zechariah here. Just note again that the circumstances Zechariah and Haggai, these two prophets who would have worked together, They were sent by God to encourage the Jews, like was said, to rebuild the temple because the work had stopped. So in Zechariah chapter 8 verse 9, there's a verse that I think really points to this where he says directly, let your hands be strong that the temple might be built. We're going to see that in chapter 4 as well, the emphasis on the importance of their present work in building the temple. And like was mentioned, the, the circumstances is this is the nation that had been punished and scattered among the nations but these were the first part of the remnant to come back and begin rebuilding what was destroyed by Babylon but they had no king no physical king at least their territory was incredibly diminished even in Jesus's day the territory that the Jewish people had in Jesus's day was still a very diminished physical territory they never they never regained the territory that they once had in the glory of the days of David and Solomon. The temple was not as glorious. David and Solomon had like infinite resources of gold, silver, and bronze. They had resources of the wisdom of the nations around them to help them in the task. It's not the case here. These people had, in some senses, great resources, but in comparison, very limited. And so the temple just didn't look as good as it once did. David and Solomon, they had great military power and they, at this time, had none. And in Solomon's time, when the temple was being built, there was no resistance. There were no obstacles. They could build the temple freely. The nations around them were pooling in their resources and contributing. That's not what's happening here. Their work is greatly opposed. And the reason why Zechariah was sent in the first place was because of that. But God's promise is that he will fulfill and is fulfilling all of his promises of glory in their work. We'll see that this morning. And then just a couple of quick things, just to give you a sense of direction within the book. If you're like me, and and maybe not, understanding the structure, and and books of the Bible have incredible structure, I feel like I'm able to draw more out of a book of the Bible when I get a sense of its structure. And Zechariah is a very structured book. It's split in half. Chapters 1 through 6 is focused on removing every obstacle. And then chapters 7 through 14, in a kind of paralleled contrast, God promises he will give power and peace to the nation through their work. You'll see more parallels in chapter 1, 1 through 6. It talks about renewing repentance. And when the cycle of the book almost begins again in chapter 7, it's the same thing, renewing repentance. And then following this renewal of repentance, there are very vivid things that are spoken of to illustrate God's promises. In chapter 1 through 6, it's eight visions with one concluding illustration, and in chapters 9 through 14, it's two oracles, which is just a word that means very, very vivid prophecies. So you'll see it also in a couple other ways. In verses, in verse 14 of chapter 1, God says, I'm exceedingly jealous for Zion. Chapter 8, verse 2, again, where the cycle of the book is like beginning again, he says the same thing. I am exceedingly zealous for Zion. And then chapter 6 concludes the first section with an emphasis on a new glorious kingship and rule that would be brought into the nation. Chapter 14, at the end of the second section, it's the same thing. The Lord will be king over all. Again, the emphasis, a new rule, a greater rule is going to come through the work. Not to be too overwhelming, but I think um, one more point about structure is very, uh, very important to note. We have eight visions in the first uh, six chapters. We looked at the first four the last time we were in Zechariah. The first four visions conclude with an illustration involving the high priest, which was Joshua. And that illustration is meant to convey something about the coming branch, which would be Jesus. And then this illustration with the coming branch comes with also an emphasis on the importance of renewed obedience. These next four visions, it's the same thing. These next four visions are gonna conclude in chapter six with an emphasis on Joshua, the high priest and an illustration that relates to the branch and renewal of the importance of obedience as a result. So again, those structural things, maybe that just doesn't seem very important, but it really helps me draw more out of books of the Bible when I see those things. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We're going to start here. And and again, I'm just going to try to speak very simply, but hopefully clearly about what the lessons are in these incredible visions. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel who is speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who is speaking with with me saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who is speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So you'll see the title of this first section is the obstacle of the work. What we're going to find in this illustration, this vision, is that this relates to God removing obstacles in their work in building the temple specifically. Uh, this, this vision is very interesting. I imagine the angel showing Zechariah these things and just kind of looking at the scene. And, you know, this probably isn't exactly how it, how it went. But I imagine the angel smiling as he's seeing these things and Zechariah looking confused and looking up. You know, what is this? And the angel being like, you don't know what this is? And He says, no, and that's going to happen multiple times in the chapter. Um, so what does Zechariah see here? It's, it's a simple but incredible vision. This is gonna be the only vision where I'll put up a very um, crude illustration that I put together to kind of visualize it a little bit. I've struggled in the past with like, okay, what what am I even supposed to be seeing here? So maybe this will be helpful. But in this vision, you've basically got a lampstand with these seven lamps that are connected to this bowl and it's all of gold. And these seven lamps are burning with these two olive trees that are on its right and its left side. And we're going to find in verse 12, if you would just want to look ahead at verse 12, we're going to find that later in this vision, Zechariah is going to ask about these two branches, these pipes that are coming out of the olive trees and they're feeding oil continuously into the bowl. So that that's the vision, right? And it's extremely strange. The, the visions in the next couple chapters, they're all very strange. But again, it's very simple. You just kind of think of God in all his wisdom and all his magnificence, all the complicated things that God has done and created. This is how he chooses to make the points and the lessons within this chapter. So I think just as a basis, the lampstand is a common symbol for God's people. You remember Revelation chapter 2 and 3. How are the churches visualized in Revelation chapter 2 and 3? Each church is visualized as a lampstand. Remember Matthew chapter 5, after Jesus finishes speaking about the Beatitudes, he says, you are the light of the world. The lampstand, I think, is just related to this common theme of God's people being illustrated as lights. And God's people here, pictured as this light, are being fully and infinitely supplied by these two living olive, olive trees, which are constantly pouring fuel, which is oil, into this bowl, which is keeping these lamps lit. And they're, they're always going to be lit because these olive trees are always providing more than enough oil. So here's going to be the first point. Perspective motivates participation. Perspective motivates participation. The reason why the Jews stopped building the temple when Persia put it to a stop, the reason they stopped is because they had lost Perspective. When we have godly perspective, it motivates godly participation. Perspective is so important in serving God. But participation that begins from this perspective, it leads to greater perspective. So the people were working now. We talked about a few weeks ago that the people had begun working and Zacharias prophesied prophesied to the people as they're doing the work. So their participation by faith is leading to God getting this opportunity now to continue to increase the capacity of their perspective of what they're doing. And I want to look at some of the things that God says here. We'll look at some key statements, but I want to read the rest of the chapter again before we do that. Verse six, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And he's saying like, this is what this vision means here. Here's the interpretation. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone, with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Just a quick side note, his last answer, I kind of imagine Zechariah being like, oh, okay, but like not really <laughs> understanding what that means. Verse 14, I think, is, is uh, more difficult because it's almost like an explanation that needs more explanation, but it doesn't get that extra explanation. We'll, we'll try to make more sense of that in a little bit. But I just want to look at some key statements that are made here that are very powerful that come from this vision. The first one, not by might, nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord. Something I think we need to remember, I pointed this out in a lesson last year. We have to remember God's commands are themselves promises. When God tells us to do something and we feel overwhelmed by the task, or it seems like the hope of it is too far away, or our means are too insufficient, or what we do is too little and we're not contributing enough to meet the need, but God's commands are themselves Promises. It's not up to us to have the strength or the wisdom or the power. It's up to us to just rely on the Lord to provide everything sufficient for his work. God understands our insufficiency. And his work calls us out of self-reliance and into complete reliance on him. It's simply the nature of his work because he's calling us out of one condition, out of one condition of thinking out of one condition of being motivated by and into a new condition of thinking, a new condition of motivation and a new quality, a new kind of work. And so God's work by nature motivates more dependence on him and less dependence on ourselves. So the work would not be done by their military strength or by some physical king or a need for a new physical king, but simply by God's provisions and in his spirit, which he was actively providing for him as seen in the vision. The next statement, what are you, O great mountain? Zerubbabel, who was the governor here, he would have been like the leader, not the king, but the leader of the Jews at this point. Zerubbabel would finish the work. And if you go to Ezra chapter 5, after they began the work, it follows it up by saying, and they finished it. So Zerubbabel would finish the work. And as Zerubbabel and the people would finish the work, God would take care of the mountain. And you have to think like the mountain, which is like a great obstacle, could seem so disconnected from the work of building the temple. What does building the temple have to do with taking down this great obstacle of a mountain? But the thing is, that's another part of God's commands. It will seem so often like what God is commanding us to do has no relation to the other problems in our life. What does seeking God's kingdom first have to do with this other problem I'm facing in my life? It has everything to do with the problem. God's will, God's work is always the right solution because God is sovereign. God's will connects to everything in our lives and God is able to bring down every mountain in our lives as well. We'll think more about this with this last statement. Who is despised the day of small things? We do. But God doesn't. And this is an important reality I think we need to understand is, what sin does, sin gives us false expectations that contradict God's expectations. And it can be difficult to learn, again, to have a different perspective. Remember what Jesus said about having faith the size of a mustard seed. Imagine if Jesus actually had a mustard seed for that illustration, If he said that while holding up a mustard seed, you would look at his fingers and be like, is he holding anything? It's like, oh wait, he's actually holding a mustard seed. Mustard seeds are incredibly small. Um, You may have heard me say this before, but I was sitting in, um, uh, it wasn't wasn't, uh, for an assembly, but somebody was having a Bible study and they brought mustard seeds to illustrate what Jesus said. And uh, when they gave me one, as you would imagine with me, I lost it pretty quickly. Um, I tried to keep it in my hand, but it was so tiny it fell out of my hand and I couldn't find it on the ground after I dropped it. It's, it's incredibly small. But God does not despise the day of small things. And before we get into this last point I have on the board here, I want to think about something that I've heard in my past that has really impacted me related to this idea. Um, many of you have heard me use this illustration before as well, but In Minnesota, at a different congregation in the city, there was uh, a brother who gave a sermon on how faith had equipped him to deal with difficulties in his life with raising his son. Him and his wife worked exhausting jobs with exhausting hours. It was emotionally exhausting, just the work itself. Their brother, uh, not their brother, their son, had severe disabilities to where he could not physically really move very much or take care of himself or communicate. And so they needed to move around a lot to get the treatments that he needed, the teaching that he needed, the schooling that he needed, the medicine that he needed, all of which was incredibly expensive, but all of which was necessary for taking care of their heavily disabled child. And uh, at one point in the lesson, he mentioned that it was mentally impossible for their son to ever grasp the amount of work and sacrifice that went into serving his needs. But he said, that didn't matter to them. They said was, the slightest, smallest sign of progress made it all worth it to them. If only we could see from God's perspective. Things that we don't notice, things we overlook, if only we could see how much work God has to do to accomplish those things. The condition that people were in right now, they were stripped. They had no army, no physical king. Their resources were so, so small compared to what they were at one point. They were hardly the nation they were before. Good, good. It was this nation that Jesus would later come into and not the one that Solomon had built. It was this nation that would be glorified and not the one that had the temple with unlimited resources, with an intimidating army That brought subjection of all the surrounding nations. It would be the diminished nation that God would choose to glorify. So, how does this relate to us? Is there sin that just seems so overwhelming? Is there sin that we just can't seem to overcome? Is it we just feel like we don't know enough of the Bible? Is it the growth of the church here, as I mentioned, elders and deacons, or growth in the leadership of the men, or participation among the women, or unity in the church? Is it evangelism and, and, and changing perspective, being more motivated to bring the gospel out? Whatever it is, how does this relate to you? Are there mountains in your life that it feels like you just can't overcome? The anthem statements of this chapter are so powerful to keep in mind, not by might, not by spirit, or not, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, O great mountain? Who has despised the day of small things? As we just trust God's word, and we take those small steps and we stumble and rely on God's mercy to help us to continue pressing forward, God will do great things. One final note: remember with the two anointed ones, the conclusion in chapter six, nine through fifteen there's two offices in Israel where there was anointing oil involved in appointment, and that was the priest and the king and one of the emphasis uh, one of the main points of emphasis of this series of visions is God bringing the priesthood and the kingship together and bringing it into one in one person. We'll remember that when we get to the end of the lesson. Chapter five, the obstacle of wickedness. Again, very strange but very striking visions and I think the rest of these visions are all a part of this mountain. So chapter four, God is encouraging Zerubbabel, a real person who is working on the temple. He's saying, just continue with the work. It'll get done let me take care of the mountain and chapter 5 and chapter 6 is that mountain chapter 5 verses 1 through 4 then I lifted up my eyes again and looked and behold there was a flying scroll and he said to me what do you see and I answered I see a flying scroll it's length 20 cubits and it's width 10 cubits then he said to me this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on the one side And everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. Again, a very strange and striking vision. So kind of imagine in your mind like a flying carpet. There's this huge flying scroll, uh, the literal... Um, measurements for, for us would be 30 feet by 15 feet. It's, it's gigantic. Um, it's the equivalent of the original holy place and the measurements of the holy place in the first tabernacle. So it's, it's the size of a fairly large room with curses written on the front and the back or the top or bottom relating to thieves. And I think the principle is people who rob men and those who are swearing falsely in God's name, which is robbing God of glory. So you have just, I think, two general categories of wickedness people who rob each other and people who rob God of his glory and this scroll is sent by God at night I think that's important into a person's house and it destroys it completely there's no battle there's no fight it's not the scroll wrapping around a person and then I'm trying to pull it off and you know slicing it with a knife it just it goes into his house and it does its work and there's no resistance that's possible I think it's almost an image like the Passover When when the Passover of Israel happened, uh, God went into these households and there was no battle, there was only death. And so the idea is God is sending his word out into people's homes for greater investment and accountability. I think the point of this, and we're going to make the main points after the second vision here, but just to outline something general here, Israel's secret, internal, intimate sins were the greater obstacle than their external enemies. Why was Jerusalem destroyed in the first place? I mean, Babylon was a powerful nation that destroyed it, but the reason is because of these sins that Israel was bent on hiding, and therefore the nation had to be destroyed. 2 Kings 17.9 says this explicitly. When it's talking about Assyria destroying the northern part of the nation, it says the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. The scroll is going in at night into a person's home. The idea is God sees what people don't see. God sees what's being hidden from the eyes of the brethren of the person in the house. And God is able to punish and to keep accountable when people are unable to keep accountable. And here's, I think, an important thing with this is God's zeal to bless his people, it demands a zeal to deal with sin and to judge it among his people. God cannot truly bless his people unless the problem of sin is dealt with. It's like if somebody is sick with a disease and you want them to live a healthy life, you've got to deal with the disease first. You can't live a healthy life if you're not dealing with the sickness itself. Let's look at verses 5 through 11 and then make some more points about these visions. Then the angel who is speaking with me went out and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah. And an ephah is just like a basket. So just kind of keep that in your mind. Ephah, a basket. Again, he said, this is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And, there, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast a lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked and there were two women coming out of the wind or two women coming out with the wind in their wings. And they had wings like the wings of the stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. I said to the angel who is speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. So this woman wickedness here, as she's called, is taken away to this place, Shinar. And uh, just a side note, Shinar is the region of Babylon. That's in Daniel chapter one, verse two. It's also in Genesis chapter 11. You remember the Tower of Babel? The people traveled to the land of Shinar and they built the Tower of Babel. So Shinar is this place, Babylon, where where the people had literally just come from captivity. But again, sin's presence had always been the reason why God could not truly bless them. And I think it's interesting to see that sin is pictured, wickedness is pictured here in this context, not as a gigantic dragon, not as a warrior with a sword and a shield, but as a woman. And I don't mean any offense to women. I don't think scripture means any offense. But it's not that wickedness here is pictured as some grand, intimidating enemy ready for battle. And in fact, this woman wickedness fits into this little basket. And when it's covered over with the sled covering, it's simply taken away. And God doesn't need great, powerful forces to come and take care of this. Again, we're going to see chariots in chapter 6 that God has. But here, it's just these two very gentle-looking angels with wings like a stork, and they're just going to fly wickedness away. What are some principles? God sees and treats sin like we treat cancer. Something that needs to be eradicated, the beginning of chapter 5. Sin needs to be eradicated. And if it's not going to be eradicated, then it needs to be like a tumor removed completely and thrown away somewhere else because it does not belong in the midst of God's people or the work and I think here we have a a greater understanding of what the temple was meant to represent not just a structure to be present in the nation but a symbol of holiness and purity a beacon of God's glory that was meant to convey the necessity of purity among his people what if we thought about sin like the coronavirus? You know, you think about the cautions that the world takes. We don't just willfully expose ourselves to the virus and we take distancing caution. What God is saying is they've seen the consequences of sin and they need to distance themselves from wickedness. They need to let God completely eradicate sin from the nation and from their lives personally. Remember Matthew chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 5, 29 and 30 when he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and cast it away from you. It's better for you to go into, into uh, life with one eye than to enter your whole body and to have your whole body cast into hell. The point is, we mustn't keep sin within reach. If you're struggling with sin in your life, in the first lesson, uh, the first vision, I think we need to make sure that we're not striving at all costs to keep those things private. Oftentimes for me, when I've struggled with sin, oftentimes it's been in the privacy of night. We need to understand that God sees what others don't see and it's not hidden from God. We need to get sin out of our lives and we just need to be more serious about striving against sin. There are words that need to be removed from our vocabulary. There's thoughts that we just need put out of our mind, meditations that we don't need in our mind. There's habits that we just need to forsake completely. Maybe there's company that we don't need to keep anymore. Maybe there's people that we put ourselves around and that we see who are really influencing us continuously away from the Lord and from the influence of his holiness. There are affections and attachments that we need to aggressively be striving to destroy. The application is whatever it is that's keeping wickedness's presence in your life it needs to be removed completely. It cannot be kept within reach. If there is a pet sin that you are continuously finding yourself giving into, you need to look deeper at the roots of what keeps leading you back to giving in. God does not illustrate or command what is unreasonable or impossible. I think sometimes there's language that makes it sound like, or there's popular sayings even that make it sound like, We're doomed to always be giving in to sin or have sin being present in our life. And that really is not the picture we see in Scripture. Just like cancer, we need to be striving to get sin out of our life completely. God is capable of doing it. Let's finish the uh, visions here with chapter 6, with the obstacle of leadership. Remember, no physical king and no army. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my lord? The angel replied to me, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country when the strong ones went out they were eager to go to patrol the earth and he said go patrol the earth so they patrolled the earth then he cried out to me and spoke to me saying see those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath my wrath in the land of the north so again an unusual vision but remember chapter one god had sent out these horsemen in chapter one the earth was at peace and at rest and this was this was bad because the nations that had committed great travesty and injustice against God's people were at peace and okay and here God is dealing with the problem. So now instead of it just being horsemen, there are chariots with the horses and it seems to be an image of war. So the land of the north and south, that would have just simply been where the people were. To the east and to the west of Israel, there really nobody was there. The south would have been the Egyptians, the north would have been the Persians or the Babylonians. So the thing is, God was acting as their king. Israel did not have chariots. It did not have any, uh, any equipment for war. did not have any capability for war. God had capability for war. And it's two angels and their chariots that go out to the north, which would have been their greatest uh, obstacle of an enemy nation. And there again, there's no conflict. It's just, hey, we did it. And God's wrath is appeased in the land of the north. His spirit is put at rest. God was acting as their king, God was capable of dealing with the problems that they were not capable of dealing with, God was able of judging what they could not judge or stand against, and in Hebrews chapter 1 and 14, I think something important to keep in mind is angels are still sent to serve the needs of God's people. I don't know exactly how that works or what that looks like, but in Hebrews 1 in speaking of angels, it says, are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who would inherit salvation. So angels in some capacity are still sent to serve the needs of God's people. This should be very encouraging. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6 through 10 promises that the oppressors of God's people, God will bring them to destruction. Therefore, oppression should not demotivate God's people from his work. And that is exactly the point that Paul makes to the Thessalonians, that God is going to deal with these problems. God is equipped overwhelmingly to deal with the problem. And God is going to do it swiftly. And so he urges them then, don't let these potential discouragements to motivate you from continuing in the work. God is acting as their king. God has an army even when they do not. Remember Elisha. Uh, when the Arameans surrounded him and his servant. It's a very well-known story. His servant saw the army of the Arameans surrounding them, and Elisha prays that the eyes of his servant could be opened, and he saw, and there were chariots of fire surrounding the Aramean army that God had sent to protect Elisha. May God open our eyes that we can see. Verses 9 through 15. Then the word of the Lord also came to me saying, and this is, by the way, this is now a living illustration, not so much a vision. Take an offering from the exiles, from Hildai, Tobaijah and Jediah, and, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will and he and he who will bear the honor and sit on and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Halem, Topijah, Jediah, and Han the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and rebuild the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord. So, Joshua, the high priest here, he's given a crown to symbolize this person, the branch. And gold and silver are taken from these three people coming from Babylon. And the treasure they're bringing, the riches that they have to, it seems, probably adorn the temple and contribute to the work. This is being used to be turned into this crown that's being put on Joshua's head to again, symbolize the branch being a priest and a king. And I think this is a parallel to how us returning from our captivity when God brings us to refuge in Christ, we adorn the authority and the royalty and the position of Christ by our return as well. But sh- A few brief things about the branch. He's going to be a priest and a king. This is one of the most incredible prophetic pictures to me in the Bible because it's impossible except in Jesus. There's no way the Jews who would have heard these things would understand exactly how this could even happen. And do you know why? Priests in Hebrews chapter 7 came from the tribe of Levi. Kings came from David. David. So because they came from different lineages, it was not possible to mingle the two into one. So God is going to do something impossible to mingle, to to combine these two separate offices into one. The priest and the king, which the priesthood seems to be diminished. There's no longer kings. But the promise is God is bringing these things in a greater, more fulfilled way through their work. Jesus would fulfill these things. This relates to Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 where it mentions the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And and the Lord has sworn with an oath and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That psalm is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. And it pictures the Messiah again, both as a king and priest. But there was this priesthood that Jesus would inherit by coming from the lineage of David, by fulfilling righteousness, by living a life of perfection, and never sinning. He would die to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, but because of his righteous life, having never sinned, not being bound to the curse of the law, he was risen from the dead and uniquely by that resurrection and death became uniquely qualified to inherit this priesthood in Psalm 110 and Genesis 14 that would serve to change the, the circumstances of the priesthood from a physical priesthood that was weak, to a perfect priesthood established forever in, he- in heaven on the basis of the rule and promise of Christ as king. Jesus would build a new temple. So Ephesians chapter 2, 21 and 22 mentions that God's people now who belong to Jesus are a part of this temple that Jesus not only has established, but is continuing to build. Those who are far off would come to this temple to build it. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says that those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You see, Zechariah is not speaking of irrelatable, distant things. Zechariah is giving us pictures of who we are and what we've received because of Christ's work fulfilling these promises. So, one last point. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 There's something intimate about God promising that this person would serve as a symbol of these things. You could think, like, these promises were so far away, you know, it could seem like, what's the point? How would that be motivating? Think about a company like Amazon. You imagine the first people who began that company who were working on maybe the programming or the ideas. Can you imagine if the first people who started the company Amazon If they were told, well, the company won't really reach its full glory until like 40 years from now. Can you imagine if they said, well, what's the point? I give up. I'm quitting. (laughs) That would be ridiculous. Why would you quit when what you're doing gives you share in this glory? I think that's the point is God is telling them their work not only has a present glory, but there is a future hope of glory that this is leading to that they have share in if they just simply continue by faith. 1 Corinthians 15, God is able to give a hope of impossible change that even if we don't tangibly receive it now, the assurance of it motivates steadfastness and endurance and diligence. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown to dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Um, We'll stop there. God has promised that just as Joshua was going to be a part of this incredible and impossible change, this would give him hope to persist in view of these incredible promises that God was making that were meant to be personally taken. And notice in verse 58, the the promises of the resurrection and how God for us is going to accomplish what seems to be an impossible change. He says that the point of this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Participation is rooted in a perspective that looks to the hope of a changed condition. Joshua needed to see that God was working to bring the nation to a changed condition. The hope that God will change our condition into glory is the primary motivation that keeps us moving and motivated. If there's anything that can be done for you this morning, if there's any way that you've been convicted by hearing God's word, we would love to assist you or help you in any way that we can. If you want to put on Christ and salvation and baptism, we would urge you to consider that as well if you have not made that step already.